Hi friends, welcome back to Jew I Don't Know. I'm your host, Jason Harris. There are things we double check in life. Parachute straps, spelling, and brides. Jacob missed that last one, and it got him in some trouble. There's a great word in Hebrew, it's probably my favorite word, balagan. Say it with me, balagan. The best translation is clusterfuck, or total mess if you're listening with children. Sorry about that. Uh, but anyway, Balagan describes the whole series of events that ended up netting Jacob two wives, Rachel and Leah, who become Jewish matriarchs in their own right. And we'll be telling that story today. <laughs> I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. So when we left Jacob at the end of the last episode, he was fleeing into the wilderness in the direction of his uncle's house. Rebecca, his mother, got him out of there to prevent Esau from killing him, but she convinced Isaac that Jacob had to leave in order to find a wife who wasn't a Canaanite. Remember, back when Abraham sent his servant to find Isaac a wife, you don't want a Canaanite to disrupt the covenant. But on his way from his home in Beersheba to his uncle's house in Haran, things got a little freaky. It got dark, so Jacob decides to sleep out in the wilderness and lays his head upon a stone that he found lying around. It was then that he had his famous dream about a ladder or a stairway reaching up to heaven with angels going up and down. And then suddenly God was standing next to him at the bottom of the ladder, and now it is Jacob's turn to receive the covenant in his first, but not last, encounter with God. All the land around him will be given to him and his descendants, who will be as numerous as the dust on earth, and God will be with him and protect him and will bring him back to this land, and crucially, will not leave Jacob until these promises have been fulfilled. So pretty impressive speech. Perhaps it's the really vivid imagery of the stairway to heaven that has given this story such lasting fame. But let's also remember that what we know of Jacob at this point is mainly that he's deceitful. He stole both the birthright and the blessing from Esau, and now fled home rather than take accountability for his actions when his father discovered his fraud. And for this, he is rewarded right away with the sacred covenant? The imagery of angels ascending and then descending the ladder have made for all kinds of interpretations and metaphors through the ages. Some are connected to the notion of a life journey, in which the metaphor is that we take one step up after another, sometimes slipping down a rung or two. Other metaphors were connected directly to history, as when the rabbis in the first century of the Common Era used the latter to denote the rise and fall of Rome. Others are connected to spirituality, the idea being that one group of angels took Jacob as far as this night and ascended to heaven, while another group of angels are descending in order to take him the rest of the way. But in connecting with the idea that up to this point Jacob has been fairly deceitful, I prefer the archetype of a hero's journey. And thanks to my cinephile friend Lauren for pointing that one out. A crucial step in that journey is the notion of crossing the threshold, and I like to think of Jacob's situation as that. Before his dream in the wilderness, Jacob was one kind of person. Deceitful, avoidant, arrogant. But as we will see after the dream, he starts to become a different person. Determined, hardworking, forgiving. Perhaps the angels going up were his old persona leaving him, and the ones coming down were carrying new traits to fit his personality going forward. What we do know is that Jacob was pretty well stunned upon waking up on a rock in the wilderness and immediately began searching for brunch. No, wait, that was me last weekend. That, that's a long story. No, actually, Jacob awoke and uttered the famous phrase, Surely the Lord is here in this place, and I did not know it. This was such a profound experience for him. Young, scared, alone in the darkness of nowhere. 
that he would refer to this encounter with God and God's reassuring promise on his deathbed decades later. This was the moment of Jacob's spiritual awakening. He took the stone that he used as a pillow, anointed it with oil, and named the site Bethel. It still exists today, it's just north of Jerusalem in the West Bank, it's an Arab village called Beitim. Jacob dusts himself off and continues on his journey east, leaving the promised land of Canaan to head towards the home of his uncle Laban, his mother's brother. In chapter 29 of Genesis, he arrives at a well. Actually, the same well that Abraham's servant arrived at when he came to get a wife for Isaac. And because the Torah has something for everyone, it proceeds to describe for you engineers out there exactly how this well worked. A stone covered the top of the well, and once all the flocks of sheep and their shepherds had gathered, the stone would be rolled away, the sheep watered, and the stone rolled back again. Archaeologists say that the stone served two purposes. It prevented things from falling in and polluting the water, and it ensured that the non-locals would have to pay to access it. So Jacob meets a few guys there, and lo and behold, discovers that he has indeed arrived in Haran. That these guys all know his uncle Laban, and wow, like what a coincidence. Here comes Laban's daughter Rachel around the corner to get water for her sheep. Now, remember what happened when Abraham's servant met Rebekah at the same well. Rebekah drew water for him and his camels, thus demonstrating her kindness and generosity. But this time the roles are reversed. Jacob single-handedly rolls the stone from the top of the well and gives water to Rachel's flock. So you see what I mean about the crossing of the threshold metaphor? The old Jacob, I don't think, would ever have done this. But there is still enough of the old Jacob left that he grabs Rachel, kisses her, starts crying, and explains that he is her cousin. She goes and gets her dad, Laban, and he takes Jacob into his home. After a month, Laban comes to Jacob and says, Just because your family doesn't mean you don't have to work for me. So how would you like to be paid? And Jacob has an idea. Laban has two daughters, Rachel and Leah. Now, if you know this story, then you know that the storyline that has come down through history is that Leah, the older sister, was ugly, and Rachel, the younger one, was beautiful. But this is not exactly what the Torah says. Leah is described as having weak eyes. Rachel, on the other hand, is described as shapely and beautiful. Remember how the Torah treats siblings. The older one always gets screwed over by the younger. And here it's not going to be any different. Jacob had by now fallen in love with Rachel, so he makes a deal with his conniving uncle Laban that he will serve him for seven years in exchange for marrying Rachel. And here's another irony that fits my crossing the threshold narrative. The old Jacob was destined to be served, remember? God told Rebecca regarding her twins that the older would serve the younger, Jacob's the younger. Isaac's blessing for Jacob indicated that the people of the world would serve him. Esau was also later told that he will serve Jacob. But now the threshold has been crossed, and the new Jacob will be the servant. And he goes along with it. Actually, to be technically legal about it, Laban never explicitly agrees to this deal. He responds to Jacob's request by saying that, well, better Rachel should have him than be marrying off to an outsider. But Jacob is so blinded by his googly eyes for Rachel that the seven years pass as a few days. Which is good, because Jacob's about to get totally screwed. At the end of the seven years, Laban throws a huge wedding feast. He brings his veiled daughter to Jacob for the betrothal. They sleep together, and in the morning, Jacob rolls over to find Ms. Weeguys in the bed, not Rachel. So let's stop for one second to again appreciate the many little ironies in the story of Jacob. Where he dressed up as his older brother Esau to deceive his father, now Leah has dressed up as Rachel to deceive him. 
Also, where was Rachel? She knew Jacob loved her and was working for Laban in order to marry her, so how is it that she just sat out the wedding without saying anything? One interpretation is that she was protecting her younger sister. She knew that Leah wasn't ever going to be married off, and not wanting that fate for her, she allowed her own marriage to be divided to ensure that Leah would have the protection and status that came from marriage and children. Her silence, then, was maybe an extraordinary act of selflessness, something we should remember as the relationship between the two sisters starts to go south. Jacob confronts Laban, demanding an explanation, but Laban shrugs and says, Look, it's not our practice in these parts that we marry the younger daughter before the older one. But tell you what, work for me another seven years and I'll give you Rachel too. And because Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah, I just poor Leah, I feel so bad for her, he agrees. And this time I'm quite sure that he lifted the veil to double check that it was indeed Rachel. So after 14 years of hard labor, two brides for the price of two. And so, finally, Jacob and Leah and Rachel settled down to live out many decades of blissful, happy marriage together as a family. Yeah, but, I mean, that's definitely not what happened. No, what happened next was an intense competition to produce male heirs for Jacob, an effort that would culminate in 13 children from four different women. Okay, I'm going to run through this really quickly. Don't even try to keep up. I'm just going to get it out there. Let's see if, you know, we can do it super fast. All right, here we go. God had sympathy for Leah, since she was unloved. So God opened her womb while making Rachel infertile, and Leah knocked out four sons in rapid succession. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, at which Rachel, pissed at Jacob for not having the power of God to impregnate her, gave him her maidservant, or possibly half-sister, Bilhah, to sleep with, who promptly produced two sons named Don and Naphtali. Not to be outdone by her hotter sister, weak-eyes Leah gave Jacob her own maidservant, again possibly half-sister, Zilpah, who also produced two sons named God and Asher. So Rachel, not one to surrender so easily, came up with a Jacob and Esau-type scheme to switch her night with Leah in exchange for some mandrake fruits. Leah accepts the deal and, lo and behold, has a lucky night that produces yet another son, Issachar, followed a short time later by son number 10, Zebulon, and followed soon after by the one and only girl of the family, Dina. Finally, unable to keep track of what is going on anymore, God remembered Rachel and she bore a son named Joseph. Whew. Wow. So actually, that's not the end of the children. There will be one more son named Benjamin from Rachel, but he doesn't come into the picture until much later. So to recap, we have now 11 sons and one daughter from Rachel, Leah, Bilka, and Zilpah. The last two are the maidservants or possibly half-sisters of Rachel and Leah. There was a lot of sisterly rivalry going on, various intrigues, and of course the kind of classical biblical contradictions that give rise to Jewish values and traditions. For one thing, the underdog. This is certainly a quintessentially American tradition, which is why we've all hated the Yankees since the 1920s, but we can see the genesis of this tradition in this story. Leah's misfortune is to be unloved by Jacob, and used by her father to trick Jacob into even marrying her at all. But although her husband has abandoned her, her father has betrayed her, and her more gifted sister competes with her, God stays with her. God gives her a most powerful gift, the ability to conceive Jacob's children, and denies that ability, for a while anyway, to Rachel, elevating Leah's importance. We already know from the stories of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah that God gets involved in human affairs. But we can pull out from this convoluted story that God is also discerning, and in this case, compassionately judgmental. 
The God that wiped out the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah is also the God who sees that one woman is loved less than the other and ensures that she will have comfort. And of course, we have this contentious relationship with the sisters in which they both lose sight of the positives in their lives and focus on the negatives. Once again in the Torah, we have what sounds less like a legendary story from ancient history and more like real life. Rachel was more loved by Jacob but desperately wanted to have his children. And Leah had his children but desperately wanted to be loved by him. As the conservative Jewish movement wrote in their most recent Bible commentary, each diminished the value of what she was blessed with and focused on what she lacked. In fact, the name that each woman gave to each of her successive children was a statement to how she felt about her status at the moment. It's kind of cool. Very interesting anyway. Take Leah's first three sons. The first, Reuben, comes from a Hebrew phrase that means, God has seen my suffering. It also means, see, a son, reflecting his parents' surprise in the age before ultrasounds. So, if your name is Reuben and you were a good kid growing up, you're in the clear. The second son, Simeon, comes from the root Shema, which means to hear, and in this context means that Leah believed God gave her another son because God heard how unloved she was. And Levi, which comes from a root that means attached to, has Leah saying that with this third son, surely now her husband will become attached to her. It isn't until her fourth son, Judah, whose name indicates praise for God, that Leah's attitude starts to shift away from her grievances. This is the Judah, by the way, from whom we will get the word Jew. But then, switching over to Rachel, after her maidservant Bilhah conceives a son for Jacob, Rachel names him Don, which comes from the root word meaning to judge or vindicate, and expresses her sense that God has vindicated her. Bilhah's next son, Naphtali, means a contest. He is named after Rachel declaring herself the winner in the fateful contest I waged with my sister, she said, and on and on. Going by this tradition of naming children after sibling rivalries, my kids will be named, didn't fill up a tank after borrowing my car, and one time called shotgun, all the way up to Tahoe. No, no, I'm just kidding. My siblings are actually super awesome. And to their credit, Rachel and Leah do come around to naming their children after positive attributes around luck, reward, and happiness. The Torah paints this portrait of two sisters struggling to find their place in the family. And while this contest certainly has its downsides, the competition between them pushed each woman into having more and more children which is essential to making this great nation that God promised in the covenant with Abraham. The Jewish family tree really gets going with these 12 sons from Rachel and Leah, and 10 of these sons, plus two grandsons, will become the patriarchs to the 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 tribes are the future divisions of the Jewish people that will play a bigger role down the line as we get into the book of Exodus and what happens in Egypt. But for now, we have a really big family. got Jacob and Rachel and Leah and 12 kids living with Laban and his whole family, and it's a little too crowded. So 20 years after leaving his home in Canaan, Jacob decides that it's time to head back. What follows is Jacob's hero's journey home. Vengeful fathers-in-laws, estranged brothers with huge armies, wrestling with balls of fire, and the death of one of his wives. Stay with us. Talk to you next time. Uh -oh.